Welcome to the GMAT Strategy Podcast. You're here because you believe there's a better way to study for the GMAT, and so do I. I created the GMAT Strategy to maximize your results and minimize your efforts so you can get to the fun parts about business school and life as quickly as possible. My name is Isaac Puglia, and I've been teaching GMAT classes and tutoring privately for the GMAT for over six years, and I personally have achieved a 99th percentile score on an official GMAT exam and helped hundreds of students get into the business schools of their choice. I'm excited to be a part of your MBA journey since I think the world can benefit from the best possible business leaders that we can find. And if this show is bringing you value, please share it with your friends and family who are studying for the GMAT so that together we can make this process as easy and painless for as many people as we possibly can. Let's go. Let's talk about the integrated reasoning section. As of today, if the essay is the least important part of your GMAT score, which it is, then the integrated reasoning score is one step above that. So the integrated reasoning score is not as important as your individual quant section score. It's not as important as your individual verbal section score, and it's not as important as your total score. But it is significantly more important than the essay. The essay is the least important by a very wide margin, and as of a few years ago, the IR section or integrated reasoning section was also very unimportant because it was still relatively new. And business schools hadn't really collected a lot of data on how predictive the integrated reasoning section is for business school success and success beyond business school. But now that several classes of folks have taken the integrated reasoning section, gone to business school, gotten grades, and then gone out into the world and started working again, Business schools are starting to collect quite a bit of data, and it turns out that the integrated reasoning section is fairly predictive of success in business school and beyond. And so you can expect that the integrated reasoning section is going to become more and more and more important over the next few years. So let's start with the basics, and then we'll talk about strategy, and we'll talk about what you want to do if, if you need to improve your integrated reasoning score. So first things first, it's scored on a scale of 1 to and there are 12 questions in the section so it's not like the score is how many questions you got right it's called a scaled score so based on how many questions you get right and the difficulties of those questions you'll be gauged against other people who took that section and a history of data of people who've taken the integrated reasoning section and that will create your scaled score so we'll talk a little bit more about scoring later, but for now, the basics of IR is as of today, you want at least a six if you're targeting, let's say, a top 50 business school program. You might be able to get away outside of the top 20. You might be able to get away with a five. Five might be neutral. Below five, as, as, as far as I know, is seen as a small minus on your application. And you might be able to overcome that in other areas. It's more than possible. I'm sure people do it every year, but... If you're applying to a top school, then you don't really want to give them any reason to say no to you or to compare you to another candidate and think that you're not as good of a candidate as that other person. So I would say at least a six going forward. Now, if you're listening to this a couple years from now, things have probably gotten more competitive and you probably want at least a seven. Right now, a seven or an eight is a small plus. I don't think it's a big enough plus that you should be going really hard on your integrated reasoning study or, or putting a lot of hours into it, but there may be exceptions to that which we'll talk about in a moment. So for now, let's, let's talk about the format of the section itself, and we'll return to scoring. 
The format of the integrated reasoning section content-wise is basically the same as the math that you've been studying for the quant section and the verbal that you've been studying for the verbal section. I guess I can't say it's the same because there's it's not like grammar questions the way you might be tested on sentence correction. And I've never seen like a geometry question per se on a integrated reasoning section. But a good way to think about integrated reasoning is there's no new content. So you don't have to learn anything new as far as material goes. However, it is new or different from the quant and verbal sections in, in the sense that there are different formats of questions that you you will answer. And there are four different question formats in integrated reasoning, and it's a good idea to be familiar with each one individually and have at least a little bit of strategy for how to approach each one. You'll have 30 minutes to answer 12 of these four different types of questions, but the interesting thing about those 12 questions is most of them have multiple parts, and so it often feels a little bit more like 30 questions in 30 minutes. And so time is often of the essence on integrated reasoning. Most people feel some time pressure on the IR section, so don't worry if that's the case for you. Now, unlike the math and verbal sections of the GMAT, the quant and verbal sections, integrated reasoning is not adaptive, but it, it looks like it's adaptive because you have to answer the question that you're on so that you can see the next question and you cannot return to questions that you have already seen. So a lot of people get tricked into thinking that it's adaptive just like the rest of the test, but it's not. If you get a question right, the next question doesn't get harder or easier depending on your previous performance. So as a result, your score on the integrated reasoning section is just based on accuracy. How many questions did you get right versus how many did you get wrong. Now there's a small adjustment in the integrated reasoning scoring algorithm for difficulty level of questions, which is good news. If you see a particularly hard IR section, then your score will be adjusted up to reflect the difficulty of that. However, if you see an easier IR section, then you'll be expected to perform a little bit better in order to average out with your peers. So that's, that's worth knowing. Um, that means that you don't necessarily need to worry if you have to dump questions or if you're running short on time, it's okay if you have to guess. And there's no guessing penalty on the integrated reasoning section, so you wanna make sure that you always put a random guess down if you must leave a question blank or if you're gonna skip a question for time purposes. Again, you want to get a, a six or better, but that doesn't mean you want to get six questions out of 12 questions right. In order to get a six, you're probably looking at somewhere in like the 60 to 80% accuracy range on the integrated reasoning section. My guess is it'll start to become more competitive and get into that. As of today, there are certain IR sections that I've seen people get only six out of 12 questions right and they can still get a six. Usually you can afford to miss maybe three to four questions and still be hitting in that six or seven range. You can even often miss a couple questions and still get an eight, a perfect score, quote unquote. So you're really looking to get about nine out of those 12 questions right. If you miss the mark a little bit, you only get eight. You're probably still okay. If, you, if it's a lucky day or a, a couple guesses go your way and you get 10 out of 12 right, that's awesome. That's, that's really nice. Probably be a small little plus on your application. Now, there's an important difference between integrated reasoning and the regular quant section in that there's a calculator on the integrated reasoning section and you show and hide it on the screen. It's not a physical calculator that they give you in the exam room. And I would probably keep the calculator shown for as much of the section as you possibly can. It's a little bit frustrating sometimes 
because the calculator can cover up some of the material that you have to read for certain types of integrated reasoning question types. So that's, that's kind of sad. So you may have to hide it periodically. But the reason I, I tell people to keep it open is to remind them to use it because most of us when we're studying for the GMAT are conditioning ourselves to never use a calculator. And so all of a sudden when it's available, you can forget it. And that might mean wasting some time doing computation that you don't have to. Now, quick little hint about the calculator. Many questions that you would use the calculator heavily on can be estimated on the integrated reasoning section. And it's often faster to estimate the question than it is to punch everything into the calculator. So keep that in mind. If you're about to do three minutes of calculations on the calculator and on an IR problem, chances are there are short, there's a shortcut that you might not be seeing. However, if you just want to find the average of seven numbers, I would strongly recommend using the calculator for that because it's probably less error prone and it'll reduce the overall drag on your brain during the section. Now, here's an important point about these multi-part questions that I mentioned. So I mentioned there's 12 questions, but a lot of times they have multiple parts. So it feels more like 30 questions. These multi-part questions have no partial credit on the integrated reasoning section. So the main strategic tip that I tell people there is if you're doing a multi-part question, like let's say it's number six on the section, but there, there are three parts to the question, A, B, and C. Let's say you're looking at A and you're like, oh, that's easy. I know that one. And you, and you mark it. And then you look at B and you're like, shoot, I have no idea. <laughs> the best thing you can do in that situation is make a reasonable guess and then go through part C quickly because at that point, if you have to guess on one of the parts of the question, your odds of getting the overall question correct go down significantly because, again, there's, there's no partial credit. So if you get only two out of those three right, you get a zero for the question. So you want to be thoughtful about that. And during your practice of integrated reasoning sections, if you're really having time trouble and you plan to maybe skip a question, it's probably a good idea to skip one of those multi-part questions for statistical reasons. So something to think about. That covers us for general strategy for the most part. So let's dive into the four question types that I mentioned. The first type that you'll see is called a two-part analysis. And these questions are interesting because they'll often give you extraneous information, information that you don't necessarily need to solve the question, which I think is one of the major departures from the quant section and the, uh, to the IR section, is that integrated reasoning questions often give you information that you don't actually need. So a lot of the skill that you're being tested on in integrated reasoning is uh, not as much problem solving like you are in the quant section, but a lot of times filtering through a lot of information to find what are the key bits that you need in order to answer a question or solve a problem. Now with two-part analysis questions, they're always the same. They're basically going to be algebra questions, usually word problems, that you'll, that you'll have to set up equations and solve for two individual variables. Again, two-part analysis questions, they're generally algebra questions where you solve for two individual variables. That's it. <laughs> there isn't a whole lot of strategy there from my perspective, other than making sure that you're writing out what's given very clearly, and that if you are going to use substitution or elimination to solve a system of equations, that you make sure that your scratch work is very clear so that you don't end up missing questions that you know how to do. I guess the last tip I can give for two-part analysis questions is you won't always be able to execute the algebra and solve for the exact values of variables. Sometimes you might have to select from a multiple choice option a possible value of that variable. And in that situation, you should be comfortable taking the answers and guessing and testing with them. I've seen a couple two-part analysis questions do that where you can't just use standard algebra and get, okay, here's X, here's Y. Maybe you solve and you get a ratio for X and Y, like the ratio of X to Y is two to three. And 
and then there's only two answer options that you can select that would give you that specific ratio, but you have to plug in the answers in order to figure that out. So be mentally prepared for something like that. The next question type is called a graphs interpretation. And if you've ever seen a graph before in your life, these should be pretty familiar. So the best tip that I can give for graphs interpretation questions is to make sure you read the title and the axes of the graphs very carefully before you go to the questions about them. Usually the questions that go with graphs questions are drop-down questions, and you'll usually see two. And remember, there's no partial credit there. So if you have no idea what one what the answer to one question is, you can take a quick guess there. And you might want to consider just guessing on the entire problem because remember, you have to get both of those right in order to get credit for the overall problem on that graph. You might see some weird graphs like bubble charts and, and things that are a little unusual. Try not to let that throw you off too much. Just read the question, look at the graph, read the title and the axes and ask yourself, do I have a reasonable shot at, at answering this? And if you do, it's best usually, this is a, kind of a tip you won't find in a book, but I think it's a good tip. It's best usually to just interpret things as simply as you possibly can. So if there's a complex interpretation for something, that's probably not the right interpretation. You want to interpret it in as simple a way as you can. That can help a lot if you're confused on graphs questions. Two more question types. Uh, first is called table analysis, and that's basically a spreadsheet. So if you've ever seen a spreadsheet before, this should be pretty familiar. If you've never seen a spreadsheet before, you're gonna really like business school. It's all, all spreadsheets all the time. <laughs> um, with, the, with the table analysis questions, you can sort the data using this sort of rudimentary sorting feature with a drop-down menu on the screen. You'll Once you see it once, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And the main tip I can give there is different questions will ask you about different aspects of the data in the table, and it's best to sort based on whatever that question is asking you about. So if there are several pieces of data, like average um, number of uh, restrooms per customer or average profit per customer or something like that and the question asks you about average profit per customer you would want to sort by average profit per customer or average profit per customer visit or something like that that's the best tip for for table analysis is sort by whatever you're being asked about in the question the last type is called multi-source reasoning and what you'll see is it looks very similar to reading comp on the verbal side where there's a, a block of text or maybe a table of data on the left-hand side of the screen, and then the question is on the right-hand side of the screen. And you'll usually see two or three questions on each batch of multi-source reasoning data. And part of the reason for that is, the reason it's called multi-source reasoning is there are several tabs of data that will be related to each other, and you'll have to flip back and forth between those tabs of data and answer questions about how the data relates, usually. So you usually see two or three questions on that because it takes a while to interpret all the data. So a good tip for multi-source reasoning is just to skim the data first. If there's any text, go ahead and skim that. Take some light notes if you think that'll help you. And then take a look at the tables and ask yourself, how do these things relate? Could I predict the type of question they might be asking me about this, etc. And then, of course, you can always look at the, qu the first question there and, uh, and see what they're asking you about and go from there. That's what I would recommend, similar to what I'd recommend on a, a reading comp passage on verbal. Well... Not exactly, but not too dissimilar from it. So one last really important tip that you'll see on basically all four question types is the GMAT likes to use these words infer, imply, suggest, and support. And that can be very misleading because in regular life when we think about inferences or implications or something suggesting something else, we're thinking that we have to fill in some logical gap and use our subjective opinion to fill that in. So for example, let's say I 
uh, come to a meeting with you and my hair is wet, you might reasonably infer that I just took a shower or that I just went swimming or something like that, or maybe that it's raining outside. However, on the GMAT, infer, imply, suggest, and support, they do not mean what they normally mean in life. On the GMAT, infer, imply, suggest, and support all mean it can be proven 100%. So it can be proven 100%. That's very, very different. If I come to a meeting with you and my hair is wet, you can basically only prove two things 100%. You can't prove that I just took a shower. You can't prove that it's raining outside just based on the fact that my hair is wet. You can only prove two things. You can prove that my hair, that I have hair, first of all, <laughs> and second of all, that that hair is not dry. Those are the, the two things that you can prove in that situation. So that's a very different way of interpreting those words. And the reason I make a big deal out of it for folks is a lot of people don't realize that. And so they're looking at an integrated reasoning question, like a graph's interpretation. And the question is saying the graph suggests which of the following, and then people are sort of putting their own opinion into the situation and saying, oh, I believe the graph is showing me something like this. But that's not actually what they're asking you to do when they use that word suggest in that situation. Instead, they're just asking you, what can you 100% prove based on what you see in this graph? And that's a, a subtle but very important shift in your thinking when you see those types of words, especially in the IR section. But it also goes uh, with the verbal section as well. So, I'll give you some final advice. If you take some practice IR sections and you realize you really must improve your score, like you're scoring like a two or a three or a, even a five and you wanna get to the next level, the best advice I can do is plan for just a few hours of total study for integrated reasoning to get the basics down. And if you want some help, Manhattan Prep publishes a really great strategy guide on the integrated reasoning and the essay that I can strongly recommend. If you're already taking an in-person class or a digital class, then you're probably gonna cover that in your class. But just on the off chance that you don't get any instruction about integrated reasoning, the Manhattan Prep guide I think is sort of the biggest, best bang for your buck as far as an inexpensive resource that really does a good job covering all the material you would need to know for those two sections. So I guess I'll give one last tip, which is in the order of the exam, you can take essay and IR first. I usually don't recommend doing that because they're the least important part of the, the score overall. So I usually recommend taking the quant section first or the verbal section first, whichever you like better, and you can experiment. And usually take the essay and integrated reasoning last. That would be my advice if you're unsure how to handle that. As always, if you have questions about any of this, feel free to reach out to me at the GMAT strategy on Instagram, slash the GMAT strategy on Reddit, slash the GMAT strategy on Facebook, and at the GMAT strategy on YouTube. Otherwise, my greatest hope is that this information will make your studies as easy and as painless as possible. If you want more tips and strategies for optimizing your performance on the GMAT, just head to thegmatstrategy.com and check out my video presentation on how to achieve your goal score in half the normal time and with half the normal effort. In the meantime, this is a weekly show, so please subscribe and stay positive and stay consistent with your studies. I'll talk to you soon.